the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. And so we're seeing a lineage, an aristocracy being passed down. And we can say with certainty in futility, in mediocrity, there's nothing here, here, there's nothing exciting except that God is patiently endeavoring to steer Israel back to them. When we look in particular in Kings, what we need to be reminded of is it's a divided kingdom, much like the United States, the Republicans and the Democrats were a divided kingdom. And somewhere in between are those who have not yet made up their minds. And then somewhere, hoping to get a shot at something, there's another party. But it is important to know that nations, either by religion or politics, will be divided. Praise God that at this juncture, there's still the potential of a change, because we're at about 50%. The question is, will the other 50% join not a party, but rather an opportunity to become a part of a family? Will they join a family that's eternal? Will they join God by the means and protocol, not just a vote for him, but a surrender to him? There's a difference. My vote for God doesn't count for anything unless it's directed in a ballot that chooses an individual that loves God as much as I do. But my surrender to God has everything to do with my effectiveness apart from the ballot box, both in how I pray. And so the sad thing here is that it is the inevitable breaking up of a nation because they broke their covenant with God. God never broke the covenant with him. They broke it with him. In essence, the Heart of God was touched deeply. I would suppose to say it's fair that in brokenness, God expressed himself in the life and surrender of Jesus for us, a world that refused to surrender to him. Now we know that back in these days, and this is well in advance of God's visitation as the Lord, that there will be a working out and there is going to be a pattern in life that shows that until there is a determined change, then an outcome will always render something less than satisfactory. And actually this kind of plays into that. Elisha is off the scene. He served his tenure well. He does not need to worry any longer about the affairs and events of life. We still do. There's a way to do it that doesn't get you ensnared in the things that pull you off from the importance of following God and integrity. But just to remind you, there is division in the land. Politics certainly are evident in this passage of Scripture. In one sense, only the uniforms have changed. The condition of man, which is highly able to be influenced in depravity, 
needs to make a decision that is radical for divinity. And it only comes by saying, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to follow him better than I have been. I'm going to follow him in the sincerity with which perhaps I have exercised hesitancy. I am going to follow God. And if the nation won't, then at least my life and the way that I've lived it and the decisions that I've made may inspire one other person to take up the mantle, to wear the shoes that I wore, to follow the God whom I love. And so this is a son that's important to know. A son that could be influenced by his father, but the father wasn't doing so good, and the father actually would have a demise which would cause this son to be not only angered, but vengeful. It's important to note that even in politics, families can be divided by being angry at what another person either would do or didn't do, did say, did not say. So this is real time for us. Joash, as you can see, being now the king and a young one at that, will have a challenge with regard to ultimately how does he, now that he no longer is on the scene, guarantee that his lineage will be preserved in whom follows him? Now I say that because we know that He's not there. It's his son that's being raised up. You also need to understand this is Judah. This is the, this is the tribe that basically, of just one other half of it, Judah and Benjamin, occupied Jerusalem. And that's important. That's the city of David. All of the great accomplishments that Israel had, notably worldwide at that time under Solomon's rule, but certainly under David's exploits and his poetic and expert playing of instruments and administration, certainly an element that doesn't exist right now in this. It's like us trying to go back and we marvel at the writings of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, of Benjamin Franklin, of these great minds who had great penmanship too. <laughs> which we don't. And you listen to them through the articulation of the pen, and you're just going, incredible. I mean, their brains are firing on all cylinders. I don't think that's necessarily true in our generation, certainly not in the politics of our times. I don't think anything's firing, and there aren't enough people being fired in politics. Maybe that's the problem. But I do want you to understand that in this text right now, we are talking about what is the southern tribe, the tribe of Judah. And they're going to be the ones right now that seemingly have the greatest advantage to seeing even, if you would, a restoration of themselves. And so it identifies his age, it identifies that he's now the king, 
It identifies his reign and his mom's. In verse 3, it says, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Good. Notice this, though, after the comma. And that's this. Yet not like his father David. He did everything as his father Joash had done. He's getting a compliment. And in Revelation, even the church at least several of them got no correction, but this kind of, to me, impersonates Ephesus, which had commendations, but the correction was, you need to return to your first love. You need to return to your first love. This is what I got against you. These are the things that you've done that I've taken note of, exemplary, motivational, life-changing, but you need to return to your first love. And that's the call of the church regardless. We can say that we're in love with the Lord, and I do believe we mean it. And I do believe that specifically when we see that word in Revelation spoken to the church of Ephesus, it means that deep inside themselves, they know that what they once did, they're no longer doing. That's the fault of what they once did, perhaps in the heart of David, they now no longer do. And this isn't speaking or preaching about works that give us greater favor with God. It's a God that says, as you love someone and as you desire to be loved by someone, I too have created you to love me. I love you. Let's have some reciprocation. Let's return to the days in which tears easily flowed. Songs were welling up within you. Promises were in the grasp of your hand and in faith you believed. And you saw me move heaven and earth for you. And so that's important to realize that there is a compliment. But it goes only as so far as to say that not quite like David, not quite like David. I think he would be a fascinating man, obviously, to have known, and certainly one that we will get to know. But whomever, once we get up there and think those are the guys I'm going through, I will tell you right now, there's nobody that you can think of that you will actually have a heart bigger for than God himself who will meet you. I'm sure that heaven's going to be fascinating by all the historical people, but there's no one more greatly historical than Jesus Christ and what he did for us. So this is a word that's important to take note of. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. We should be. But in this, not like his father David, If that is us, and I think that anybody could say, that kind of, I'm qualified, yep. I just went, eh, not good. But I know what it's like to be excellent. I know what it's like to be closer to an A than the C. I was a C guy most of my life. One year in college in which I got motivated to end it really good, and I did because I was motivated. One moment in which I said, mediocrity is not for me. Though I cannot boast in anything that I do, 
I know that the day that I chose to move up by grade, I ultimately then was ready to receive a vocation to teach. Before that, not so much. And I know this, that most of what I learned about teaching, I didn't learn at Oregon State. Sorry, Oregon State, but I didn't. I learned it because God had always put that in me. But he gave me a means by which I then could express it and learn it as I went along, just like your faith. He's giving you that by his spirit, learning it as you go your way, and really making a difference in people's lives. May we be those who are able to say that God has observed me doing right in his sight, and he thinks I'm really cool like David. I've got David's heart. I like that. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. This means basically he didn't clean up situations that could have been tidied up. And those were incumbent upon kings to do. Don't let the kingdom crumble spiritually. Get those things out that do not honor me, that are distractions concerning me, that take my people's heart, and where it's swelled up for me, it is becoming dried and withered towards me. Spirituality, true spirituality, is on decline, and that means the heart is set on God. The mind is very acute to the fact that Israel is a linchpin to everything that we enjoy in faith. And that whatever it is that both entertains us or even engages us vocationally means nothing if it is not anchored on a resolute determination that God is superior to anything and everything in our life. It's both what God sees and recognizes as good, but what he also has taken note of and given us, this heart of David. He wasn't perfect, but when he was in the situation to change, to call out to God, or to be able to have candid discussion, transparencies before God, he would. He got stung a lot by the consequence of sin, but he took God seriously and he allowed God to govern the course of his life until his last breath. It's a good way to live. And so as soon as the kingdom, it says in verse 5, was established in his hand that he executed his servants who had murdered his father and king. So there's brutality here, or we would say this is judicial prudence by a king who had the authority in those days to do that. And what he's doing is he's taking out those who ultimately were responsible for the murder of his father. Whether we like it or not, now business was conducted, it was allowable. One of the things, though, we see, which exercises at least biblical prudence, is that in verse 6, but the children of the murderers he did not execute, according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, in which the Lord commanded, saying, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers, but a person shall be put to death for his own sin. And this is a biblical principle. 
we're accountable to God for having a relationship with him and ultimately being responsible as to if we are saved by him, our behavior changes radically. Each one of us becomes from a child ultimately to a mature person and ultimately a, a senior and then we become dust. I'm closer to becoming dust now than when I first began. And I can, I can count the years. And I'm trying to, as accounting for the years, make sure I can have an account before God that says, well done, wretch. You did well. Not by comparison to any person, but just the fact that I do love God. And I'm not a famous man before God. But I think that what we can say, each one of us, is that, man, do we love God. Worthy of our praise. Worthy of acknowledging His goodness to us at the beginning of our day, at the close of our night, at the table that He's made provision for us, the bills that we pay. Praise God for His goodness, His faithfulness, my health, the calamity that I've come out of, the surgery that I move into. I've got my ears and eyes on all of that because to me it's inevitably saying there will be a day in which my frailty will catch up to me. And I've got my kids that are proving to... <laughs> well, I got my hand slapped for desiring a prune last night. And that's, that's healthy. It's between meals snacking, Dad. Isn't that good? Mm. And so I got my prune taken up out of my hand. But I will tell you, it was hermetically sealed in a package. And the package did look like candy. So one may say that it actually was removed from my hand, not because it was a prune, but because I thought it was a piece of candy. And the Lord was just saying, eh, 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 eh. at any rate. We're laughing about that, but I, I did have to walk down the hallway rather humbled. That, but I didn't go back and get it. And so in this, we see that he did honor, one, he made a judicial, if you would, judgment. Those who had murdered his father, he had executed. Solomon did the very same thing to those who were betrayers in his father's kingdom. Three at least notably, meaning that it was allowed. By the way, one of the problems that we have in societies that we no longer believe in judicial prudence. We believe in judicial patience. No longer are we assertive to the things of the law that are meant for civil unity and to actually show a protection of society. We have given way, unfortunately, to the variance of excessive patience. We're not punishing we're not executing. God never intended for society to be mired down in ultimately those who by choosing sin and rejecting God would become a detriment to society. That's not sinister. God always intended that in the governance of a society there would be checks and balances. And when there are no longer checks, then there are imbalances. And when the imbalance weighs to being simply a sensitive human being rather than a radical, if you would, rights advocate for the innocent, then you have problems. 
Our society is no longer a radical rights activist for the unborn child. We've done well, better than 40 years ago. But you can see that Satan has moved in to continue to taunt and to persuade that that decision which overturned Roe versus Wade was wrong to ever have even had to be initiated again. Roe versus Wade was wrong. They got it wrong. It got turned around. That was right. What do you have now happening? It's still our choice. No, it's God's choice. That baby is God's baby. And so he's exercising judicial prudence. He's honoring the context of the law. He's not going after the generation that follows. Mercy and grace. That's what God does. It says in verse 7, and this is where it's interesting because it just turns this like quick thought. But what we do see is that he's going to war. So he's a young guy. And this is who he says he's going to war with. He killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Sold and took Selah by war and called its name Jachthiel to this day. And then, verse 8, Amaziah sent messengers to Joash, the son of Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us face one another in battle. So this is where it's turning, and it's an important understanding He's commended for doing things that the Lord is acknowledging as worthy, falling short of David. That's a correction. He's being given right now credit for pursuing the enemies of God or the neighboring communities that were harassing Israel. And in this case, what we would say Judah. When I use Israel, it is a formal term describing the northern tribes but Israel as a whole, though divided civilly, was still meant to be, from God's perspective, my nation. But he's right now the one that's overseeing, if you would, those who occupy Jerusalem. And he's going to war with enemies. And in so doing, he is actually having victory. But it's not just him. And here's where we pick this up. And I'll see if I can direct your eyes to that. Um, it can be found in Second Chronicles, if you just turn over there. It's right in back of, obviously, Second Kings. And the text I want you to be at is chapter 25 of Second Chronicles. You'll see something that's, I think, important. We're coming back and trying to figure out this 10,000 Edomites in the valley, this battle that he had. And so Second Chronicles helps us to understand this. Verse 5, Moreover, Amaziah, same guy we're talking about, gathered Judah together and set over them captains of thousands and captains of hundreds and according to their fathers' houses throughout all Judah and Benjamin. And he numbered them from 20 years old and above and found them to be 300,000 choice men able to go to war who could handle spear and shield. So he's got quite, if you would, an army that he wants to assemble in order to have victory. We have two different sets of numbers. 
but they're two focuses right now. In verse 6, he says, He also hired 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel for 100 talents of silver. These would be called in our days mercenaries. They're from the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom. He really wants to give these guys a shellac and to make sure it sticks. So he basically hires out for mercenaries. What is he doing, though, in this by the things that we see? He's doing what all of the other kings erred in. He's trusting in the strength of men with swords and spears, and he's not trusting in God, who alone was the authority to give victory and to give victory his way. Jericho that historically they knew fell by one reason. They obeyed God. They marched around the city seven times. They yelled and the walls fell. They didn't have to do anything but move in mass and clean up the city. Joshua would discover in a series of events that it was God and God alone that would give the victory. And he didn't want anybody else taking credit for it. And so this man, who's king over Judah, is trying to, if you would, pump it up politically, have an opportunity to be seen as a great king. Maybe in his mind he thought, that he would rival even King David's accomplishments. The problem is he's not King David. We already saw that. And you can't make it up for things that you might say man will exalt you for in anybody's life. It always comes back to what is it that God wants done and how does he want to do it? Even in this age in which there seemingly is civil strife all over? How does God want us to confront civil strife, division within the church? I would say probably the way that his son did, finding quiet space. Jesus sought before the sun even rose, quietness in prayer with God the Father. He's the Lord. He's the Son of God. But he sought with discipline his heavenly father as an example for us as well. Devotional time. So these hirelings from Israel are bought, and it says for 100 talents of silver. But a man of God, notice this, came to him saying, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, not with any of the children of Ephraim. So God sends a prophet so that Amaziah doesn't have to make a mistake and so he doesn't have to continue on a course that ultimately is going to cost him. But if you go, be gone. Be strong in battle. Even so, God shall make you fall before the enemies. Ah, but if you're going to do it, go ahead and do it. Have fun. See how it turns out. And that very can often be the, sa the same thing for us today. We have in our mind what we're going to do, and we're going to do it because it just seems good in our eyes. It doesn't seem like it's all that big of a deal. So you get a word. Get a friend, get a family member, and they begin to pique your conscience, prick it a little bit. Okay, do what you're going to do, but God shall make you fall before the enemy, for God has power to help and to overthrow. This is a good word because it means if he has the power to help me and to overthrow that which is, if you would, in my way, Lord, he gets to do it. 
I can have confidence that God will achieve it. I believe he'll invite me into it, but he also may keep me at a safe distance from it that I might not succumb to changing the plans on him. Amaziah said to the man of God, but what shall we do about the hundred talents which I have given to the troops of Israel? And the man of God answered, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. I just lost money on this deal. Who has not had that happen before to them? Doesn't that just sound like, that's me. And here's what God says. This is, I think, a cool word for any of us that have lost on a bad deal. The Lord is able to give you much more than this. Maybe a promise to some of us. So Amaziah discharged the troops that had come to him, and it says, from Ephraim to go back home. Therefore, notice this, what their temperament is. Basically, they got fired. Here's what happens. Their anger was greatly aroused against Judah, and they returned home in great anger. I leave you there. Go back. Because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's good counsel. That's why we have problems is that we have come to be complacent about the anger that seemingly is justified and we have terrible things that are happening. These guys that are mercenaries have anger management problems. And the problem with that is they're going to get away with some stuff, but the other problem is because they got away with some stuff, it provokes the king of Judah right now, or the king of Judah, to take initiative and things into his own hands and to basically get payback. Here's what happens where we're given that insight. So Amaziah sent messengers to Joash, that's the king of Israel. Notice what he's going to say to him. Come, let us face one another in battle. Let's get face to face on this. It relates to what we just read. What's happened is the guys that I hired from your kingdom have taken advantage of the innocent people in my kingdom, and I want to take you on now. I had great victory. Everybody knows it. Clean their clocks. I'm to be feared. Let's meet face to face. I got hurt. I'm going to hurt you. In essence is what is being said here. You have indeed defeated Edom. This is the answer that he's getting. You have indeed defeated Edom and your heart has lifted you up. Glory in that and stay at home. For why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall and you and Judah with you. So this is the council right now of Israel. The king of Israel is saying, it's obvious, you had great success. Admirable. Take opportunity to thank God for the success he's given to you and leave me alone. I'm not going to get tangled up in your affairs. And so there's a truth in this. At times we get tangled up in unnecessary affairs because of seemingly a misunderstanding or an unsettled issue. 
And sometimes God says, I'll settle it, you let it go. Because the temperaments of you too is going to cause a problem in what I want to do or what I can do. And you've probably had that kind of thing happen. And sometimes the best mediation is meditation. Some people say, well, you're wimping out. I'd rather be called a wimp meditating on the word, asking God for patience in the circumstance than to roll up my sleeves, pretend that I'm a six foot guy, 250 pounds of muscle and madness and righteousness and think that I'm going to get away with it because I won't. And I recall specifically at times in my life in which anger was the motivation to the result and the result fell far short of the glory of God. And actually I put myself in a quagmire. It wasn't a long one, but it was sufficient enough to know I didn't help myself out at all on that one. We broker for peace. We remain at peace. We trust in God to bring a closure or at least the ability to say, I'm letting it go. I'm letting it go. I'm putting that person that has become in my heart, in my mind, my enemy, I'm going to put them back on the altar in which God says, I died for them. And I died for you, wretch. I'm not going to be afraid of what people assume because I'm gentle or because I'm willing to take the loss. I'm going to see if, in fact, God says, even more can God give me than what I am angry about and that which I've lost. I like the biblical assessment there. And so the king of Israel saying, let it go. Don't make us face off with one another. It's going to cost you. And so he didn't listen to the council. He didn't listen to the king. And so Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. This is the consequence. Then Joash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Amaziah, at Beth Shemesh. And he went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. The great victory that Amaziah experienced now was at a cost. The city was broken into. Israel basically assaulted it. That's the 10 northern tribes. And he now loses both his reputation. He loses the resources of his kingdom. He loses the confidence of his people because he had to go one more step of being a tough guy. Didn't work. All the gold, verse 14, and silver, all the articles that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and hostages, they returned to Samaria. That's where the northern kingdom is. They lost it all. And so with that, just a couple of principles that seem to play out to me. Found in Colossians chapter 3, coordinating with this picture we've seen. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man 
with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. I think that's a wonderful principle in Colossians. Great passage there, chapter 3. And the other, closing in verse 6 of 1 Timothy, notice this. I'm going to pick it up in verse 5. Useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Verse 6, now godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing and these, we shall be content. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Principles that highlight the picture we just saw that may have with that tie of having contentment, and it says, is containment. The containment of our anger, of our bias, of the things that can move us away from our focus on the Lord is because we did not contain appropriately the things that God gave us warning of spiritually. We do not have to be indulgent in the expressions of the flesh. We pull away. We talk to God about it. We don't ask, per se, somebody's opinion on it. We don't need a bunch of opinions. We need God's word. We need his washing. We need the principles of a long walk. Maybe it's a hard run. I could use a hard run, just that I don't trust myself running. Well, actually, I don't like myself running. It's painful. <laughs> but I need to do something, and I will. I'll stay away from the prince. I'll start there. And so those principles are important to be able to say, yes, Lord, that makes sense, perfect sense. And I do not want to have devastation because I had a manifestation of my own will, exalted by my pride to do it my way and not your way. I'd rather be thought as meek, as a wimp, than to have done something that has a greater consequence that God would have spared me from. 